Welcome to A Life Lived Backwards, One Man's Life, the accompanying podcast to Larry Rutman's memoir, A Life Lived Backwards, an existential triad of friendship, inquisitiveness, and maturation. Hi there, I'm Jordan Rich with a pretty easy task and a fun one at that. I pose questions to Larry and with that razor sharp memory of his and a great talent for storytelling, well, you just have to settle back and enjoy the ride. So we've been talking uh, about people in your life, so many interesting friends and relations and connections. And you did mention to me that you served in the Air Force. What years do you recall those were? Well, I graduated UMass in 1952, Mm -hmm. and I was uh, in the ROTC. So I became a second lieutenant on graduation, and I was a few months—and I graduated like in late May or early June— and I was assigned my first station was in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, to report, I think it was August 1st. And as I just told you, I met Carla uh, maybe a month and a half before that. Oh, the famous Carla story. Check it out on the podcast, folks. It's so, worth listening. So I went into the Air Force, and uh, as I said, Carla's father was uh, Donald Lothrop, was very well-known guy. Um, and he had the Community Church of Boston— which was Unitarian, but it, he used it uh, to have guests who were politically oriented. So anyway, after uh, I, this this occurred during the time I was in the Air Force, and after I was stationed in Harrisburg, I wound up at Newcastle County Airport in Delaware, and uh, it was there that I was doing what is I was an OSI officer, which was intelligence and interviewing people to determine whether the person, about somebody to determine whether that person should be given top clearances and things like that. So I would be sent out on the road, not dressed in a uniform, but dressed in civilian clothes, to interview people. Did a lot of that in West Virginia, of all places, which was not that far from where I was stationed in Delaware. But they considered it secret work, and uh, they... uh, he was supposed to observe the secrecy, naturally. And one day, uh, the uh, I would say, uh, somebody said, you're supposed to report to the commander of the base within the next hour or two. I said, what could that be about? So I went up there, and there are like four guys, the top guys, and they sit down, Lieutenant Rutman. Um, did, you, um, did you ever hear of uh, Reverend Donald Lothrop? I said, yeah, sure. I said, uh, he was, uh, and I, I told him about her. Hey, do you know he had a daughter? You, yeah, Carla, yeah, I'm friend, very friendly with her. So um, do you know that uh, uh, that he uh, uh, has these people come who are considered, this was during the Joe McCarthy era. Yeah, the Red Scare. Yeah, everybody was afraid. And um, so they kept, so they asked questions in that vein. And finally I got the idea that, they were looking, investigating me. Huh. And um, so I said, uh, well, uh, you go up to Boston quite a bit. I said, yeah, I go up there uh, in a weekends or in a pass to uh, to see Carla, yeah. And um, so, but I, I got the idea at that point that I better, I better find a way to get myself out of this. So I said uh, at one point, I said something like, did you guys... Do you know what this guy, this girl Carla, looks like? They, they, no. So I pulled out a picture of Carla, 
and uh, so I said, this is what she looks like. I had a pretty good reason to go up to Boston. (laughs) Spoken uh, like a true secret agent. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, what happened is that they they suspended me for a while and uh, moved me from the work I was doing to, of all places, the Provo Marshal's office. And the Provo Marshal on that base was a guy named Beck, who was a wonderful guy. He was a had been a flyer. He had he had uh, flown planes into Berlin do, during the Berlin airlift, mm-hmm. and he was such a good guy that when a pl- one of the jet planes from the base crashed not too far, and the guys were har- you know they died and they were mm-hmm. horribly disfigured. So he said, Larry, I don't want you to go out there because it was such a bad accident. I don't want you to see all that. And, you know, he, he was just a, a, a terrific guy. And um, so ultimately they, they relieved me of my suspension, got me back in the good graces, promoted me to first lieutenant, gave me an honorable discharge. I got help from the government during my legal education. It all turned out okay. And, uh, but but it's interesting how that period of time there were so many people looking over their shoulder, um, you know, government people looking over their shoulder at other people in the government and elsewhere. It was a, it was a strange time. Well, it was a very strange time. Of course, uh, you know, I lived through that whole period. It actually got to the point during this Air Force experience that I was thinking of getting in touch with Edward R. Murrow. Talk about mm. you when you talk about uh, journalists. Because Edward R. Murrow was famous for being against Joe McCarthy, and he really was the most famous journalist at that time in the USA, not only for what he did during the war when he was in London, but when he came back to this country, um, you know, Edward R. Murrow and CBS before, you know, everything changed in the industry was thought to be the top journalist. And um, so I was thinking to myself, I would get in touch with them as another example of somebody that is being harassed and bothered who has nothing to hide and never did anything of that sort. Right. Well, wasn't it the Army trial, that the Army hearings that uh, finally did in Joe McCarthy for a lot of— Yeah, they were on every day. And yeah. uh, you could, uh, you know, Roy Cohn, who became, as you know, uh, uh, a person who had considerable influence over Donald Trump. When he, be, when he after this period, he became a top New York attorney and fixer. And his friend, um, Shine, mm. yeah, and the two of them, you know, were going after everybody in the State Department. And, but then there was Joe Walsh, who as an attorney, you must have, uh, as a young attorney, maybe you looked at him and said, that's kind of the ideal I want to live up to? I'm not putting words in your mouth, am I? No, no, because because Welsh was a uh, an unbelievable guy. They uh, The two of them were trying to out some guy in Welch's Boston law firm. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and uh, the guy had really done nothing. And um, But McCarthy persisted in his pursuit of this guy at an open hearing. And finally, Welch said... Uh, Words to the effect: Do you have no, no uh, decency? No sense of decency, yeah, sir. So, something, something like, like this, that, sir. Yeah. And that turned—that was the moment that turned everything around. Mm. From that point on, Joe McCarthy's popularity, which had been very high, began to fail. And finally, 
and his influence uh, waned, and he he was an alcoholic. Right, right. He died a very broken man, no question about it. Yeah. Wow. So those are interesting years. Uh, did you ever fly as an Air Force officer? I mean, pilot anything or get behind the wheel or try a— This is another Carla story. <laughs> another Carla story. <laughs> but what happened? There was this guy—no, I never flew myself. Yeah. But— um, I want, but I was. I used to. F- I w- I would fly to. I wanted to fl- fl- fly the coop and get to Boston to see Colum. Okay, so this guy was a pilot that I knew on the base, and uh, he used to go up and just fly around for the fun of it. But one time he had to go up to Boston in a two-seater training plane. He said, "Well, I'll give you a ride up to Boston." So when we got in the plane, I think he was already in his cups. Um, oh, boy. And um, so we flew through clouds practically the whole time. And I'm saying to myself, am I going to get there alive? And uh, he's on instruments, comes down out of the clouds. And behold, it's Logan International Airport. And we landed. And I think I took a train back. But, you know, I got there. And um, my parents were beside themselves thinking it was gone forever. But um, Carla was there. And uh, I made it. There was another guy on the base, a Jewish guy by the name—I forget the guy's name—but he was the base surgeon. Now he was only a captain, but he was a medical doctor, and he was a powerful guy because he determined if all the older pilots could fly or they couldn't fly, for medical reasons or whatever. And so uh, he was a man of influence on the base, and he and I became, you know, good friends. So he said. So Larry he said, uh, "Do you know about um, the what the Air Force is doing these days about experiments in space?" No, experiments in space. His name was Bernie, Bernie something, Jewish mm-hmm. name, Rosenfeld or something like that. So he says, "Yeah, they 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 are flying. Uh, they they got things that'll go into orbit and fly around the Earth in one hour at twenty four thousand miles an hour." I said, Bernie, I mean, what do you think? I'm wet behind the ears? What are you telling me? Nothing can fly more than six, 700 miles an hour. 20. I mean, you're talking about things that are unbelievable. Why are you, do, why are you telling me these stories? It's true. It's true. I said, you know, come on. You know, be real. And it was all true. Of course. It was because that's the period when it's before Sputnik, so we're not quite there yet. But uh, Bernie was on to something. <laughs> well, he heard all this stuff from the guys that uh, you know he was taking care of, and you know it, it was it was big in these pilot in these guys' lives because even mm-hmm. though it was a lot of jet fighters on the base, but it was important in these in the life of these guys for the reason that they'd get extra pay if they were on flying status. Exactly. We talk about friendship. Did you have reunions with any of the the Air Force guys over the years, or was that not something you did? There were guys I got to know in the Air Force. There was, I've told you about some of them. There was another guy who was really a right-wing conservative, went to Harvard Law School, Italian. He and I used to go to a restaurant in Newcastle, not far from the base, and share via, and get veal parmesan or whatever they were serving over there. And he was a brilliant guy, but he had idea, uh, idea Jordan, I think was his name, but he had ideas that... Um, we're not consonant with my own, but that was another friendship. 
There was another guy from Chicago, Schultz, I think his name was, which was, I was living in my second year on the base on the economy in uh, Wilmington, so not on the base. Mm-hmm. Some years back, long after my Air Force experience, here's a lower story. <laughs> well, we, we've had enough Carla stories to last a little while. we got to get back to Lois, the most important woman in your life. Oh, God. So we went up to hike in uh, Franconia Notch with a dog. Um, and we almost got – we almost were one of those stories you read about people who get lost and they either find them dead or totally frozen mm. and they have to take them to a hospital. The next, I mean, I read a couple of stories the other day about people – going out at 5 o'clock to hike up a mountain mm. with nothing, with no compass, with no oh proper gosh. clothes and so forth. But anyway, um, we were we almost got lost in Franconia Notch. Fortunately, some people said, I said, we came to, we finally got back on a trail, and I said, I think we go to the right, but some people came along, and they said, no, <laughs> go. <laughs> so we went to the right place, and we got out of there. Uh, so... Um, on the way back, I said, you know, we're going to go near Camp Wingo, that, you know, high-class Jewish camp that I told you about. Yeah. was located in Gilmanton Ironworks, New Hampshire. Now, Gilmanton Ironworks became famous because it was the location of that famous novel um, about New Hampshire, Peyton Place. Oh, it became the series and the movie and all that? Yeah. Wow. So anyway, um, by this time— and I had a lot of memories of Camp Wingo. It was a big expanse. The boys' camp was on one side. The girls' camp was about a half a mile away on the other side. But they were girls. Yeah. And we played a lot of – they had a lot of programs that were – that I learned a lot. But I wanted to go back there just as a uh, – you know, because it was on the way home. It was a Catholic camp by now. And when I when we got there, I told the people that – you know, my experience. And well, we'll uh, so we'll give you a tour. So they took us all around the camp. We saw everything. A lot of it was very familiar. Some of it had disappeared, like there was a tree up on the hill in the distance that was mysterious as far as I was concerned when I was a camper, but that was gone. I'd, I'd look at that tree and I'd, I'd think of foreign places, who knows why. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm, I'm a kid, like 10 years old. And at Camp Wingo, somebody would tell us about, one of the counselors would tell us about Tchaikovsky and how great his music was. What did I know from Tchaikovsky? <laughs> but, you know, now I know a lot about Tchaikovsky, and he was a fantastic composer. I love him. And uh, a lot of Russian composers. But they took us down to the lake, and um, so, and there was a place in the grove where there was a totem pole that was a real totem pole, and it was sort of a, a dark, sinister place. So anyway, that's my story of visiting Camp Wingo, and Lois was mildly interested. <laughs> yeah, it's, 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 I've been in a similar situation with radio reunions, bringing my wife along. It's like, oh, really? She's looking at her watch. <laughs> These people are talking about things that apply to them. But it's still great to go back, and, uh, and as part of our discussion of friendship and a life well-lived, uh, knowing that you had these relationships and that you can still touch point with them in the future is really nice. Well, you know, when I was, um, you know, you can, uh, for, uh, when I was at Camp Bowercrest, Yale, of course, was the big man on campus. Yale Altman, Yale right. Yale Altman. Right. He was, 
most popular, the best athlete, blah, 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 et cetera, et cetera. And Yale had a very nice career in the publishing industry. We still talk all the time. Um, he was telling me, and one of the people that he courted for his publishing company at the time, Elsevier, which is the, which whose roots go back to the 15th century when they spirited the manuscript of one of uh, uh, of the um, Italian guy from Florence who's so famous. Why is his, how can his name escape me? Um, Galileo. Oh, that's a that's a big name. Yeah, yeah. And Galileo. <laughs> you know, so they got a hold of the manuscript and they brought it back to the Netherlands or to Holland, and it was published. He was under house arrest because of his theory that proved to be correct. Exactly. But the Catholic Church, you know, put him in house arrest. His daughter was a nun, and but she loved her father so dearly, she would talk to him all the time. That's a whole other subject. But, um, but that's the kind of technical publishing Yale was uh, uh, doing. And he lured Eric Kandel, who's so famous, used to appear with Charlie Rose, another discredited guy. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> not the journalist of our dreams. Did you ever notice? Uh, did you ever notice? Sometimes I'm I'm digressing again. That's okay. That that uh, that you and maybe even me are better interviewers than Charlie Rose. I used to get so pissed at Charlie Rose because at times it was all about him and not them. Well, yeah, and what what and not to pick on him, he's been picked on enough. But uh, what used to bug me a little bit too was that lean forward. He would almost fall out of his chair. You know, looking curious, but you're right. Um, <laughs> we can talk about interviewers at an, on another podcast. We can pick them apart anytime you want. But uh, we'll see. Where were we? We're talking about well, because Yale. Um, oh, Yale. He, right. he lured Eric Kandel, who's you know famous for brain, uh, won the Nobel Prize um, for brain stuff, and uh, one of the great minds. He grew up in Vienna, came to this country to escape the Holocaust. And Candell would appear with on Charlie Rose in a whole succession of programs about brain study, and he wrote a three thousand page book about it. I mean, he's a very well known guy. And Yale said he heard on the grapevine, he's ninety years old, just my age, that he has Alzheimer's disease. And you know, Alzheimer's disease is a disease that, you know, it 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 doesn't play favorites. That's for sure. Because uh, it can come at any age, and I guess more frequently when the older you get. And for Candell, who probably had an IQ of 160, to get to get that seems disease. like seems like the the worst kind of injustice. I mean, we're all going to get ill at some point and leave this mortal coil. But for someone of that nature, it's kind of like the the classical pianist whose hands are injured or has neurological damage and can't play. It's it's tragic. Yeah, I've run into that situation. I used to get shots. I had trigger finger, mm-hmm. and uh, I used to get shots of cortisone from a doctor down at uh, Tufts Medical Center, and he got uh, what's that disease that uh, people get? Parkinson's. Yeah, Parkinson's yeah. disease. And he was a great. He, so he he couldn't do it anymore. Mm-hmm. He used to operate on hands and stuff like that. And his successor. Um, was uh, a guy named Cassidy, who's the head of the department over at Tufts. He's a wonderful guy, and when I, if I need it, he does it. And he's become a, a personal friend, Charlie Cassidy, Chuck. And uh, for some reason, I get friendly with all these guys. I, uh, I think you can't help yourself. 
uh, knowing you <laughs> the way I do. Uh, yeah, I almost think that this podcast could be also subtitled Random Thoughts with Larry Rutman. Yeah, just, you are amazing. You can bounce from one subject to another, and all, no notes, folks. There is not a note in front of this man. Does that bother you? I no. I I'm the one with the notes. You're the. This is all from memory. It's it's well. I want to tell you about another another how a friendship can come back. So I'm at Bowcrest. Uh, is this okay, Jim? This is great. Please go. Uh, okay. So the uh, Buzz Barton was a guy. He, he, we were on the same bunk. Yale, Buzz. Uh, and uh, me and some other guys. By the way, it sounds like a comic book name, Buzz Barton. Well, his name is really Robert. <laughs> and um, But Robert Barton is somebody. Um, he was, he was, he always was overweight, big heavy guy. At times he weighed close to 300 pounds, but a great athlete and uh, a great catcher who was of major league ability in catching. I don't think he was of major league ability offensively as a batter. But in any event, what Buzz did was um, he went off and joined the Marines. And in the Marines, he became, uh, even though he had not yet become a lawyer, they made him a counsel for accused people. Mm -hmm. And he also said, well, I didn't join the Marines just to be a counsel. I want to be in the tank corps. So he wound up as a tank commander as well as counsel. And they said, well, Buzz, Robert, you're going to stay in the Marines, aren't you? But he didn't want to stay in the Marines. And um, what he told but, – but when I was doing my memoir, Yale, who's still very friendly with Buzz, said uh, – he always, he always would talk about Buzz. Now, Buzz, when he came back and went to law school, he joined F. Lee Bailey, and they were in the same office. And if and when I had a criminal case, I would sometimes call Buzz – who was becoming very well known as a criminal defense lawyer for, you know, I'm a, I'm a great brain picker. That's one of my talents. If I don't know, I always know the people who know or get to know them. So, I mean, should I tell these things about myself? But uh, <laughs> so w w what happened is that, you know, he we knew each other without meeting each other over the course of time. So... Uh, so he became well known as a criminal defense lawyer, and he's. Then he was chosen by King, I think it was, Governor King. Governor Ed King. Yeah, to be on the court, the Superior mm. Court, which tries civil cases and criminal. Oh, is it that Judge Barton? Yeah. Oh my goodness! Now I know who it is. Wow. So Judge Barton was a hanging judge. He was yeah, really tough. He was very conservative. Very right-wing Republican. Um, so, um, but I said to myself, I, I don't, my relationship with Buzz was always very pleasant, and he is a very pleasant guy and a great storyteller. So I got in touch with him, uh, and he was appointed by Judge Lynch, who was the chief judge of the Superior Court at the time, I think in the late 70s, and I think Buzz served until he had to retire at 70 in about 2000. So, and, and, but Buzz, uh, I, I thought he would be good to interview. Well, it turned out he was wonderful to interview. And he told me about his philosophy as a judge. I, I, you know, I don't know that we have time to tell it all, but for example, where he sat, usually in the Lawrence Court, the Superior Court in Middlesex. Is that Middlesex? Whatever county it is. Mm -hmm. So the, 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 
the witness would be here, he would be here, and the jury would be here. So he knew that they used to call him poker face because he'd never change his expression. And he told me all about that. He said that the reason I, I did that, he said there was a reason. Um, he said because the the jury could see me and I knew if, that if I let them know, because of the line of sight, what I thought of the witness, and a lot of witnesses lie, and I and he said I became pretty good at telling which ones were lying and which ones were telling the truth. He said, uh, I knew that they would follow my lead, and I didn't want that to happen. I wanted justice to happen. As a matter of fact, he told me that when the jury came back with the decision, he would put his head down, head down and with his lips, so nobody really knew what he was doing, but he put his head down and he said, you know, uh, God, let justice be done today. Now, look, I mean, if somebody was found, he was, you know, he was hard on guy, uh, people. He was a tough judge. But the stories he told me about, you know, and, and you know, that, that movie with, um, uh, that about a couple, about 15 years ago, about the, it was a Marine story. Oh, uh, You Can't Handle the Truth, yeah. Jack Nicholson? Right, right, right. So Buzz told me, he says, he said, that was just the way it was. He said, you know, talking about right. justice in the Marine Corps. He said, that's it. He said that, you know, it that picture did not lie. He said, you know, that was really the way it went. Um, so luckily, we had Tom Cruise to pull it off. And, <laughs> but um, so, uh, he, so the and then he told me about his marriage. Now you, you'll relate to this, Jordan, because you're romantic. So, when he was in the Marines, he met a a lady who was, uh, I guess, um, she was a stewardess or a flight attendant, and they got married, and. Everybody thought that his wife, I'm trying to think of her name, was a, was a, just a wonderful person. And she passed away about, I don't know, some years ago, leaving him by himself. Usually it's the other way around. They were so in love that uh, it just is, it was a, it was a real romance. Uh, he met her and uh, he said, I loved her every minute of every day. Uh, they each had a ring that was inscribed in French, I think it was, of something that the wife of, who was famous as a poet in France, wrote to her husband, Rostand, Edmund Rostand, who wrote Cyrano de Bergerac, that as, a, as the wife of Rostand, she loved him more today than yesterday and less today than tomorrow. Mm. And you know this is how romantic their marriage mm. was. So, but so hearing about his life as a judge, hearing about his life as a marine, hearing about his love affair, and uh, and putting that all together with his political conservatism, and how I love talking to him, I I wrote I wrote about him pretty uh, extensively, page page and page and a half, two pages, in the memoir that I hope to have published one of these days. And so 
we became, you know, much better. Well, no, not much better, but we became, again, very good friends. This is only in the last several months. And he and he's living by himself. He's confined to a wheelchair. He has one of those things to take him upstairs. Um, and uh, he's living by himself. And he's, he's, you know, I think that he's lost. he got children and grandchildren, but I think that he really misses his wife. And uh, I just thought it was... Um, you know, I didn't know the serendipity. I didn't know that was going to happen to me, but I was very attracted to his story. And uh, now he wants to know when the book is going to be published. And because the because the wonderful lady who does my formatting got COVID and with a heart involvement so that she's really talented and works over at Harvard and so forth. But she's been a little put, you know, she has to recover so the work has stopped on the book, and Buzz, Robert, Judge, Barton, wants to know when it's going to be published. And I, I write to him specifically because I care about him, and I, I tell him that it's, you know, it's delayed because of that. And, you know, he wants it to get out there because I think I've showed him what I've written, and he, and he sent me some pictures of the two of them and things like that. Well, you know, Jordan, you know as well as I do that—, that what happens in life is that you start in one place, but you never know where it's going to go. I mean, I wanted to write about my camp experience. And, you know, the, the, the whole feature of the camp experience, this is another Lois story. Lois says to me, the people who send their kids to camp just want to get away from them for the summer. <laughs> my father took me to Nantasket, and that was a great place. So I framed it around that at the beginning you know, it, was it a good experience? I thought it was a good experience. Lowest, so, but then at the end, I came back to that, and I forget how I phrased it, but I think I said something like, um, well, now you've heard the whole thing, and uh, so which is it? Do you think that, you, and I said it could be a little of both, but I said, do you think parents will send their kids away to camp or just trying to get away from the kids and have a little time for themselves? I mean, my mother and father... Like nightclub life, so who knows? A joking way of introducing the story and ending the story. I don't know the answer. Could be both. Kids can be a pain in the ass, right? <laughs> this has been a life lived backwards, one man's life. The accompanying podcast to Larry Rutman's memoir, A Life Lived Backwards, an existential triad of friendship, inquisitiveness, and maturation. You can subscribe and download this podcast, available on all podcast platforms. For information on Larry, his books, lectures, and much more, visit the website LarryRutman.com. Also check out the extensive Larry Rutman page on Wikipedia. This is Jordan Rich inviting you to join us again next time as Larry shares more stories about friendship, inquisitiveness, and maturation on A Life Lived Backwards, One Man's Life.